Church, God bless you for being fully participatory in worship this morning. Um, just awesome to pray together. I know it probably caught you a little off guard because it's not the norm, so to speak, but praise God we got to do it. Um, if, if you're sort of new to Calvary Chapel of Ithaca, my name is Andy. I, uh, I'm married. My wife, Tinsu, has been out in the, in the foyer there kind of keeping the food hot and ready for you. Um, I have four children. Two are in the back. Uh, probably cringing that I just said that. Uh, I have two who are farther back, littler ones, who are hanging out in Sunday school. So if you do want to get involved in Sunday school, um, I know my kids pretty well. God bless. Um, please volunteer. Um, you, may, you may be blessed too. Um, no, it's actually, a super, it's actually super fun. James is right. It's, 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 it's great to be able to serve, but you do take away really useful content uh, for your own personal application in life. I've probably learned more listening to four- and five-year-olds understand the gospel uh, in a very simple, genuine, wholehearted way. It's actually pretty profound. So um, some of the content you're going to hear today came straight from a five-year-old. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> that's a disclaimer, because if it doesn't go well, I can blame the five-year-old. Um, all right, doesn't really matter about any of that. Um, I uh, am uh, the assistant pastor here. I've been get, uh, living here for, I think it's going on 10 years, which kind of crazy it's been that long, but uh, we've been here and just putting our roots down and growing, um, so it's cool to be back for another semester and to see uh, some fresh faces and also some, some returning faces. It's great, great to see you guys again. Uh, as our typical church routine, we, we highly regard the Word of God and the teaching of the Word of God, so our normal approach is to uh, go through a book of the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We don't duck any of the hard parts. We just hit it as it is and seek to be edified and built up and strengthened through the teaching of the Word of God. So when I uh, am standing in on behalf of uh, my dad, who's Pastor Scott, um, I teach from the book of Jeremiah. And it's a pretty long book. I envision I'll probably be teaching Jeremiah until the day I die. Um, <laughs> based on the, the speed by which I navigate through the text and the number of times I preach per year, it's like, yeah, we'll be in Jeremiah for quite some time. Um, so, so if you uh, have your Bibles with you, uh, let's turn to Jeremiah chapter 9, and uh, we're going to sort of look at Jeremiah chapters 9 and 10 in connection, uh, in, in combination with each other, and, uh, you know, for, for the sake of time, understanding that our, our service was a little bit different than normal and, and where we are already at in our time together as, as God's people, um, I'm not going to do what is typical of our style. I'm not going to actually talk about and try to give explanation to every single verse in chapter 9 and chapter 10. Uh, I'm going to kind of key in on a few portions of the chapter, and I pray by the grace of God uh, we're able to draw some application for our life here as, uh, as God's people. So Jeremiah 9 uh, is where we'll kind of pick it up, and uh, before we do that, I, I really just want us to pray again that God would open our heart uh, to understand and receive his word. So Lord, as we come uh, before you, uh, God, I pray that the wonder of what we are about to look at is never lost upon us. Uh, that, God, this is your word. Um, your word says of itself <laughs> that it was divinely given and inspired by you that we might be edified and built up and trained for godliness through our understanding and, and more correctly, also the application of it to our life. Uh, that, God, we'd be hearers and doers. And so, Lord, I pray that you would open our heart, open our understanding, Lord, to receive with humility that which you have for us. And we pray this in your name. Amen. So we're in Jeremiah chapter 9. Um, I'm absolutely not going to attempt to give a full recap of context. Yes, and we have extra Bibles. If you do not have a Bible and you want to hold a physical, non-digital paper copy of a Bible wholly and exclusively and singularly used for one purpose and one purpose only, which is to read it. Alternatively, your phone is also cool, but the Bible, bound in paper, perhaps better. Um, Jeremiah chapter 9. I'm absolutely not going to attempt a recap of the different portions that we've covered. I'm not going to attempt a historical recap of how we got to the moment in the history of the nation of Israel when Jeremiah is on the scene but to just give a few little thoughts about it so that there's a little bit of context and understanding as we dissect these few portions that we're going to look at this morning. Understand this, from King David, uh, you can really argue from King Saul, 
all the way to the last king before the nation of Israel was brought into captivity. It was 460 years. So you're reading Samuel, you're reading Kings, you're reading Chronicles, you're reading a 460-year period of history. And during that 460 years, there is a series of kings that come and rise to power and fall. Some, by the word of God's standard, were good kings that God blessed. Some were rejecting the word of God, rejecting the law of God, leading people into idolatry, and as a result, the nation suffered at the hands of their leadership. In the final analysis, what we're going to be looking at this morning is the fact that Jeremiah comes onto the scene literally just a few years before the inevitable judgment of the nation. He's the guy who's at the very end of the tailspin of society. It's been 460 years, and it's been going in a particular direction. And God has sent prophet after prophet to warn the people and to caution them in the direction they're headed. And routinely, they would hear, but they would reject And they would harden themselves to the warning in the word of God. And so God brings Jeremiah onto the scene and he raises this man up to bring a message throughout the course of his life to warn the people of God to repent and to bring their heart into proper relationship with the God who entered into a covenant with them all the way back in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? And so he's calling the people to a right relationship with their covenant God. And Jeremiah's ministry is marked uh, uniquely by the hardship of the fact that although his message was absolutely truthful, and as we looked the last time we were together, it was delivered with tears. Jeremiah is uh, nicknamed the weeping prophet because more often than not, his heart was broken over the state of the people. And so it wasn't the kind of message of judgment that was coming with like this, you know, picket sign at the corner with hellfire and brimstone full of rage and anger just you know trashing people but it was coming from a place of compassion a place of brokenness of heart of a sorrow seeing the inevitability anticipating if God's people don't repent the inevitable consequences of their life is not going to be good for them and he could anticipate that because God gave him this message And so that's Jeremiah's ministry. It was a hard one. God told him, hey, man, the people are not going to like you. People are going to, your own people who you love are going to hate you, actually, because what you're going to tell them is going to be so hard for them to hear that they're going to be basically shooting the messenger. That's the idea. And so Jeremiah is, as you would imagine, a little trepidatious. He didn't really love the calling. It wasn't like, hey, you know, I'm going to call you to a beach, uh, beach town in the Caribbean where everybody's going to love you and it's going to be, you know, the little umbrella drink and, you know, that whole thing. You're going to win people to the, to the cross. It was like, hey, I'm calling you to a people who are going to hate you. They're going to resist you. They're going to fight against you. They're going to oppose you. And ultimately, although it may be disheartening to hear, they're not going to be very willing to repent. In fact, they probably won't. And in fact, they won't. God and Jeremiah's like, sign me up. Actually, Sunday school sounds way better. I'll do that. And so what I want to look at this morning is uh, the anatomy of a spiritual fall. The anatomy of a spiritual fall. 460 years of national history, and there is a point in time in which the, the nation falls under judgment. And we're going to look at it sort of on two levels. One's the actual application of the text, because we know that he is speaking to a nation. But I think there's from that going to be opportunity for us to reflect personally on our own relationship with the Lord and what we could learn by example from this text. And so if you would, and you have your Bibles open, as I've already alerted you to this fact, I'm not going to read every verse, so I'm going to skip down, if you would, with me with your eyes. Look at uh, Jeremiah chapter 9, starting in verse 12. And he's actually recorded in his proclaiming, this is a record of one of the preachings or one of the messages that he delivered And it starts in verse 12. He says this, Who is the man so wise that he can understand this? To whom has the mouth of the Lord spoken that he may declare it? Why is the land ruined and laid waste like a wilderness so that no one passes through? Why is the land laid waste? Why is the nation ruined? under judgment? Why is it not prospering and fruitful as God promised when he took them into the promised land? Why is it the opposite? Why is the nation this wasteland? And the voice 
of God is asking the question rhetorically. Now, I've given you a brief context to give you a sense of the trajectory of the narrative, right? Jeremiah is way, way at the end of this whole story. And so I just want you to think about the answer that you might give to this question. Why is the nation of Israel about to fall under judgment? Why is it a wasteland? Now, you may not be perhaps super familiar with your Old Testament, so you're hesitant to volunteer an answer, and that's fine. You may have some thoughts in your head of what you think it is, and I hope you do. Well, the Lord answers his question, which is really useful. And that's why I like keep reading, because God's like, if you thought you had an idea, let me give you the right answer, and here's the right answer. And the Lord says, because they have forsaken my law that I set before them, and they have not obeyed my voice or walked in accord with it, but have stubbornly followed their own hearts and have gone after the Baals, which are literally idols, as their fathers taught them. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will feed this people with bitter food and give them poisonous water to drink. Jeremiah's message was hard. It was laced with hope. God chastens those whom he loves. It wasn't to an utter destruction, but it was to a place of discipline. They would enter into captivity and they would be restored years later from that point in time. But Jeremiah is getting them to consider the fact that they are reaching the end of the, ex- of the extension of God's grace on their constant refusal to walk in obedience to his word. God is faithful to raise up those to proclaim truth. We have a responsibility to respond to the truth. God raised up Jeremiah, and Jeremiah faithfully warns the people. The people, according to God's assessment of their reaction to that, is that they stubbornly, he uses the word stubbornly, followed their own hearts. It infers the idea that they were being tugged in a direction by the word of God, and they were actively and consciously resisting the pull that the Holy Spirit and through the word of God was placing upon their heart. You'll see the same language in kind presented in the book of Acts when the gospel is being preached and Peter tells the Pharisees and he tells the children of Israel, why are you resisting and kicking against the pricking of your heart through the conviction of the Holy Spirit? Why are you resisting it? Why are you stubbornly entrenching yourself in a position that is oppositional to the word of God? Now again, my view of this particular portion is that this is the anatomy of a spiritual fall. This is what happens before someone falls spiritually. And I I support this idea based on this simple scripture. And perhaps you've heard this. If you were raised in a Christian home, or you've been around the church for any length of time as a youth, I guarantee you, you've heard this proverb shared with you many times. I'm going to start it. If you think you can finish it, I'm going to let you run with it, okay? Here, here, I'm going to start it. You ready? Okay. Pride goes before destruction. You are all partial credit. And a haughty spirit before a fall. Pride goes before destruction. And a haughty spirit comes and is entrenched before the fall. The language of Jeremiah was a language of hope and compassion. He was offering the people of God an opportunity to to recourse their life, to change direction, to orient their life and their heart and their mind and their worship according to the word of God. And they stubbornly resisted. That's an act of pride. That's an action of saying, I exalt myself against and above the word of God, and I seek to walk in my own way, to pursue my own aims, to pursue my own goals, regardless of what the word of God says to me or about me. Although the truth is proclaimed, I pridefully entrench myself in this position where as I am unwilling, eventually I become unbreakable. My heart cannot be yielded. My heart cannot be redirected. The first reference to this idea of of sort of being hard-hearted, you can remember all the way back to when Moses walked into the courtroom of Pharaoh. And he's like, let my, God says, let my people go. And the scriptures record for us multiple times that Pharaoh did what? He hardened his heart. 
he said effectively on a practical level, what was he saying? He's saying, I'm saying no to your God. No, I'm not going to do that. Nope, I'm not going to do that. God comes, he brings a plague, and the pressure mounts. And again, Pharaoh continues to harden his heart and harden his heart. It was a stubbornness. Didn't God fairly offer him an out at every single encounter with Moses? He could have said yes on the first encounter, and the entire plague story is completely different. It doesn't even happen. But he hardened his heart, and therefore judgment fell. Jeremiah comes onto the scene. The people of God have consistently rejected the prophets that preceded him, and he's one of the last voices before the inevitable uh, will come. And the description of the heart of the people is that it was full of pride, as reflected in the fact that they stubbornly hardened their heart. They would not hear the word of God. Now, I want to step back from this for a moment and ask, how did, you, how did they get this way? How did they end up here? Like, why, why now are they so hardened in their heart? What would cause them to be a kind of people that their national history was that they were a bunch of slaves oppressing Egypt for 400 years? That they went in, I think we, 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 uh, Pastor Scott taught on this very kind of idea through the narrative of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We just touched on this. They went into Egypt 70 And after 400 years of slavery, they came out millions. That's not coincidental. That's God's miraculous keeping of his covenant promise to make Abraham a father of many nations. And so God brings them out, supernaturally sustains them in the wilderness for 40 years, feeds them manna every day. Interesting footnote, one of the records in Deuteronomy about why God did this is that it was to humble them and to prove their heart. Nonetheless, God puts up with their complaining, puts up with their whining. Moses got frustrated that one time. He hit the rock, and then there was a whole thing there. Uh, Leadership is tough. Sometimes people complain. It happens. Be a parent. You'll find out. Not my kids, though. Um, We complain. Maybe you complain. My question is, though, fundamentally, how did they get here? Why, why would they get to this point, and why would they harden their heart? What would cause them to be so elevated in, in pride that they would reject the voice of the prophet Jeremiah? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to venture an explanation. So if you would go further back into your Old Testament with me and go to Deuteronomy. Uh, chapter 6 is where we're going to start. We're going to go through a series of four sections of Deuteronomy. And, and I'm, I'm going to go through with this because before God took them into the promised land, Before he gave them kings, before he established them as a nation, he gave them his law. He gave them the law through Moses, pre the promised land, and it was to prepare the people for the receiving of and and the living in the place of blessing and promise that God had for them. Okay, so he gives them the law. And I'm going to read through a handful of sections, and I think it'll become clear to you what begins to happen in the hearts of the people. So Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting in verse 10. He says this, And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give it to you, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And notice, And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Stay with me on this same train of thought. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8. Again, this was hundreds of years before Jeremiah's proclaiming his message. God, God gave them his law to prepare them to experience the blessing. He goes on, Jeremiah, uh, excuse me, Deuteronomy 8.1. The whole commandment that I command you today You should be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he did humble you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know. Nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these forty years. 
Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commands of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks, of water, of fountains and springs, flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, and land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. And you shall, notice this, eat and be full. And you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. That's why we began with thanksgiving and prayer this morning. But look at the warning that follows immediately behind the promise of great blessing. Verse 11. Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full, notice the repeat of that idea. When you have eaten and are full, and you have built good houses and you live in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied, and that you ha- on all that you have is multiplied, notice, then your heart is lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Notice, beware, lest you say in your heart, and I want you to think about these words, in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. Verse 18, you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 1. Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today to go in to possess nations greater and mightier than you, cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of the Anakim whom you know and of whom you have heard it is said, who can stand before these men? He goes on, verse 4, Do not say in your heart after the Lord your God has thrust them out from before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land, whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out from before you. Notice, he, he reiterates the point to make sure they absolutely got it. Not because of your righteousness, or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you. Lastly, Deuteronomy 10, verses 12 through 16. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I, commanding, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heavens of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. Therefore circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. He loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Therefore, love the sojourner, uh, 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 love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. I know I belabored the, the, the word in that by reading through every verse of those sections, but I wanted to do it because I wanted us to digest the warning that God gave his people hundreds of years before they entered into the land of blessing and promise. I want to reiterate something that I personally experienced, which is that it's oftentimes a little bit of an easier sell to suggest that you should give your all to God when you feel like you have nothing at all to give. When you feel like you have nothing, that you're completely destitute and broken, that you feel that you're in that place of like uh, the children of Israel when they were in Egypt, and they're like, man, we're just you know, persecuted and oppressed people. We're slaves in a land that hates us and despises us. And their voice cries out to God in that place of destitution. It's as if they're uh, 
have nothing else to lose. There's like, well, I mean, what else do I got? I'm basically a slave. I'm stuck here. Life stinks. Like, there's no hope for me. I'm gonna, of course, I'm going to call out to God. But the warning throughout the scriptures here that we just read was God saying, in the process of walking in my blessing, something very subtle and very dangerous can happen in our heart. And that as we enter into a place of blessing, as God's work in our life begins to unfold, as we receive that which he promises, we can lose track of the fact that it's not us. We conflate the outcome with our activity. We start to think that somehow it must be me. Actually, I'm doing a pretty good job. I'm actually pretty intelligent. I'm actually pretty capable. I have the things that are necessary for me to live the life of fulfillment and blessing. God warned his people, if you'd flip back with me to Jeremiah, God warned his people repeatedly, as you experience blessing, as your life becomes full, beware. Because in plenty, we can become proud. Our hearts become hard. We begin to resist simple, humble obedience for the pursuit of our own gains. That which God blesses now we seek to keep through our own energy and effort. You look in Jeremiah chapter 9, this concern that God has that their pride is going before their destruction. If you would scan down with me there in chapter 9, looking in verse 23 and 24. Jeremiah picks up this idea as, again, positioning these two things against each other. Look at verse 23. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. At the height of their success, they became so proud and so consumed with the things that God had given. And because he had brought it to pass through them, they began to assume that some of the outcome was really a result of them. They started to do exactly what God warned them not to do. To start to think, well, I, I help bring this little kingdom of Israel thing to pass. We're actually pretty good people. We have the law. They began to exalt themselves in self-righteousness, and they began to conflate the blessing with their own personal contribution to the outcome. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. I would note the three things that they boasted in. There's three things that they boasted in. God says, don't boast in them, but here's what they did. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. They boasted in their own wisdom, they boasted in their own might, and they boasted in their own riches. They had insulated themselves from a sense of dependency on Almighty God because they believed that they were smart enough, influential enough, and rich enough they didn't need God. That's really what happened. They're like, I'm smart enough. I got enough intellect. I have enough education. I have enough training. I literally don't need God in my life. I'm wise enough. I boast in my wisdom. They also boast in their might. This could speak nationally to military might. But on a personal level, I think it probably speaks to influence, a sense of capacity, a sense of ability. I can do it. I'll knuckle down and I'll get it done. And then lastly, their riches. They were like, yeah, we got enough. We're good. They began to satisfy and insulate themselves from a sense of dependency. And so in these things, it became an echo chamber of self-reference. As God warned them of impending judgment because of their sin, they're like, but I still have my money and I still have my wisdom and I still have my connections. I don't really think this is a legitimate concern. I think I'm good, actually. I think I can weather the storm, so to speak. And so they began to push back against the warnings of God. Contrarily, look at what God says they should have been boasting in. 
that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. The anatomy of a spiritual fall is exactly at this particular point. Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, after recapping several historical events throughout the nation of Israel's history, pauses to the, to the New Testament reader and says, hey, these things happened. Take heed of yourself, lest you also fall. Take heed to yourself, lest you also fall. These things are a pattern of spiritual principles which apply timelessly in all of life. We're obviously not living in the days of Jeremiah. We're living in 2022. Here we are. It's August. You've just started another semester. We're studying ancient history in church. You're like, this has limited application to my current life. And I would say you're wrong. It actually has profound implications to your life because you and I every day make conscientious decisions whether we're going to humbly walk with God or arrogantly walk in our own way. And the deception is that when life is going well, we start to lose sight of God and all of it. He told them, hey, as you're blessed, remember, it's me who gave you this. I gave you the land. I gave you the blessing. I filled you up. But we get consumed with the blessing, and we lose sight of the blessor. I think of it like this. It's as if there was a plant that was planted in the ground, a singular vine. And that vine goes deep, and the roots are rich, and it goes into good soil, and it starts to shoot out little branches. And these branches spring out, and they begin to flower, and they begin to bud. They become green, and they become fruitful. And as this happens, and I know this is a stretch, but use your imagination with me, the branches have an intellect, and they begin to reflect upon their growth. And they think to themselves, I'm, I'm flourishing. I'm actually doing really well. I look to my right, and that branch looks pretty pathetic. I look to my left, that thing needs to be watered. Clearly, somebody has the gift of weeding that they have neglected because that one's dying. And he looks at himself and he's like, I'm, I'm bearing fruit, man. I've got some life in me. I, things are going. And he begins to think of himself as a really important branch. And he looks down from his high point of growth and he sees the ground. And he's like, so dirty, so, so base, so low. Look at this vine. This vine's so average. I'm the branch. This vine. So he cuts himself off from the vine. And he puts himself in a vase on the table. And he says, look at how glorious I am. And seven days later, he's dead. And I think that's the parable of the Christian life. We have to take heed lest we fall. Jeremiah comes onto the scene and God's causing, calling them to a life of simple, humble obedience. And they were so consumed with their sense of success and accomplishment and ability that they rejected the Lord out of hand. And they literally cut themselves off from the source of that which gave them life to begin with. This was the warning that Jeremiah gave them all the way back in chapters 2, 3, 4, where he talked about how they had rejected the living water to hew out cisterns that had no real life in them. If that, if, that, if that illustration I gave you sounds remotely familiar to John chapter 15, good job. Because that is John chapter 15. I couldn't do better, so I just kind of paraphrased Jesus' words when he said, I am the vine, you are the branches, and apart from me you can do nothing. Not something. And I'll actually I'll add on my personal commentary. You actually can do something apart from him. It's called sinfulness. It's called being absolutely oppositional to the plan and purposes of God. The one thing you can't do apart from God is be holy, to be Christ-like, to be fruitful and God-glorifying in all that you do, say, and think. And so these two things stand in opposition. It should also make you think of Micah chapter 6, verse 8, when he says, What has the Lord required of you but to love? Love mercy, do justly, and walk in what kind of way? Humbly with your God. This is what God has required of you, to walk humbly with your God. If 
you are familiar with the words of Jesus when he talks about his own uh, heart. And this is a book that Pastor Scott has handed out and he's uh, shared it with me. Uh, it's called Gentle and Lowly, a great book written by uh, Dane Ortland, And he talks about the very heart of God. Jesus in Matthew chapter 11 describes himself. And how does Almighty God describe himself? As being gentle and lowly. Humble. In the prophecy before Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, before his crucifixion, they call it the triumphal entry, Jesus fulfills the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9, which says, Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. Humble, mounted on a donkey. The king is humble. The correlation I'm trying to, to draw here is that our pride positions us against dependency on God because we don't like to acknowledge our need. We don't want to be perceived as weak. We want to be perceived as strong. We want to be perceived as capable. Nobody celebrates the weakness of their life, typically. The average person tries to hide their weakness and exalt their strength. But the paradox of the Christian life is the proportionality to which you lean on God, your strength increases. And to the proportionality that you lean upon your own understanding, your spiritual strength declines. Which is why Proverbs would tell us, lean not on your own understanding, and all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. It should make you think of what Paul said about him own, his own life in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. When he's like, I was afflicted, man. I was struggling. I was suffering. And I was like, Lord, take this away from me. And God's like, I'm not gonna. My grace is sufficient. And in so doing, Paul said, I therefore now boast in my weakness. Because when I'm made weak, God is strong. The paradox of our life, guys, and the anatomy of a spiritual fall is to the degree that we think we can do it on our own is to the exact same degree that we are preparing ourselves for spiritual decline. My encouragement to you as God's people, and for myself included, is to heed the advice of Scripture. I'm going to start reading through a list of, word, of, of, of Scriptures that God gives us to reference humbleness. Psalm 18:27, For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. Psalm 25, 9, he leads the humble in what is right, and he teaches the humble his way. Psalm 147, 6, the Lord lifts up the humble, he casts the wicked to the ground. Psalm 149, verse 4, for the Lord takes pleasure in his people, he adorns the humble with salvation. Proverbs 3, 34, toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. Proverbs 11, 2, when pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. Isaiah 66, 1 and 2, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. So all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. My exhortation then concludes with this. If you would turn with me to the New Testament, the book of James chapter 4. James chapter 4. Starting in verse 6. It says, But he gives more grace, therefore it says... God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. God commands us to humble ourselves before him. It's an action we take. I thought a little bit about, like, what's a, what's a healthy antidote to pride? And I'm going to offer two other words that start with the letter P, because that's what people who preach do. People preach do this. It's called alliteration. Um, I think it's uh, perspective and proportion. The two best antidotes for pride are perspective and proportion. What I mean by this is 
and we, we've just run out of time, but if you read through Jeremiah chapter 10, maybe that's your homework for the week. Just read Jeremiah chapter 10, and you'll see that the, the author kind of goes back and forth between criticizing the idolatry and the prideful idolatry of God's people with, and the emptiness and, and insanity of it all versus the reality of the one true living God who's actually giving them life, being, and breath. And he kind of contrasts these two things in, um, like rotating sort of back and forth. The immediate response that Jeremiah gave in result of the pride and the stubbornness of the heart of God's people was to exalt in the greatness of God. He began to elevate in perspective the greatness of God. And as a result of seeing God for who he truly is, it frames us for who we truly are. Our ego goes out of whack and we think we're the greatest thing since sliced bread, and yet God's like, you're not. You're not the greatest thing. God is the greatest thing. God is the great one. God is the one who is to be exalted and made great. It is his fame that should be spread throughout the world, not our own. We are to boast in him. Throughout the New Testament, we see that in the final trajectory, in the end of all things, God's redeemed are in heaven, and what are they doing? They're casting their crowns at his feet. Have you thought about the symbolism of that act and why that's significant? Because a crown represents a reward from God to us for things that we've done in this life. So then why is it that when we get to heaven, we're throwing the rewards back down at his feet? And I submit that it is because we recognize in the final and true reality of things that it was all him anyway, that it wasn't us. We didn't do it. It was him. He was the vine and we were just the branch. We provided a conduit through which his grace and his spirit and his word could flow and work. And our privilege is simply that we got to be a part. But when we get up there, we're going to throw the crowns down because Ephesians 2.9 tells us that we will not boast in his presence. Nobody's going to get to heaven, put their crowns on and say, I did it, everybody. Number one in my class. First, first Christian, number one. No. We fall down on our, on our face in full reality. It's all of him. No flesh will glory in his sight. My heart, I guess, in all of this, and I guess I'm not really being super direct, but really my whole point in all of this is that if God is increasingly small in your life and you or the things of this world are increasingly large, my, my compassionate plea to you is take heed lest you fall. God is warning you to not lean on your own understanding, not trust in your own strengths and riches and abilities, but in all your ways acknowledge him and allow him to work through your life. In your weakness, he is made strong. And that's the whole goal here, is to make God great in our midst, that our faith might be enriched, and then as a result, we are compelled to walk exactly like he called us to which is humbly, because when you see God for who he truly is, there's no other way to relate with him. You can't help yourself. You're absolutely struck by the reality of the infinite distance between his greatness and your humanity. And so you are going to walk in humble reliance upon God. And the beauty of it is, is he delights in that and he wants us to. It's not a burden to him. It is a joy. He's like, church, abide in me. I'm yours, and you're mine, and I want to be all in on you, and I want you to lean all on me. And in that beautiful relationship, your life will be so blessed. And the beauty is you will sustain in the fullness of that blessing until the day it's perfected at Christ's coming. You don't have to live with the concern of a broken relationship and the fallout that comes from walking in pride or a lack of reliance upon the Lord. So I've fully run out of time appreciate your patience. Let's stand together. Um, we already had those among us who are like, hey, I actually can play music and I actually can lead worship. And so I know Christine and Val were willing to come up and lead us in a final, like a chorus, a song. If you guys still cool with that, if you guys want to come up. Um, and I, I'm just 100% trusting that whatever the Lord's put on your heart is going to be beautiful. And like, God bless. Look at that. I've never seen an announcement fulfilled this fast, by the way. Um, 
But I think it'd just be beautiful. I'll, I'll close in prayer. They'll lead us in um, a song of whatever the Lord's put on their heart. And then um, hopefully you guys can stick around and we can fellowship a little bit. So let's pray. Lord, it's been a great opportunity just to be with your people in your house. Lord, I'm just so thankful. I'm just so understanding of how much we don't deserve this. God, this is your grace extended once again. God, it's not that we are to reject your blessing, but we're to hold it in its proper place, recognizing that it's all from your hand. It's all you. God, in our lives, it's you. Lord, I pray that through the pressures of this life, Lord, the cares of this life, Lord, through perhaps the, the test of scarcity, Lord, but also the test of abundance, we would hold fast to you. Lord, help us as Calvary Chapel of Ithaca this time, this season, this part of the world, be a humble people, faithful to you, Lord. Not trying to trust in our own ingenuity or resources. Lord, men look for mechanisms. We look to you. Lord, you can do it all. God, I pray that you would be great among us. Lord, I pray that you would be exalted in our lives as we hang out here each week, Lord, as we join up in small groups, Lord, as we go about our life. Jesus, may you be the thing that is seen. May you be the one who's made famous. Lord, may it be true of us as it was of John the Baptist who said, he must increase. I must decrease. So Lord, refresh our hearts in this truth. Help us to walk humbly with you this week. We pray this in your name. Amen.